you know, and we're just so thankful. And like, you know, we said last week you know, with uh, this first phase, you know, we don't have anything for the kids right this minute. But remember and know that I am not bothered by those kiddos. And I'm so grateful and thankful that we can be a family church that has babies that are running around hearing about Jesus and getting to see their parents worship. And so this is this is a blessing and just such an awesome time for us. And I want to read a passage of scripture really quick. We're going to get right into it. I'm going to read a passage of scripture really quick from 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to be at this morning. We're going to finish up this series of who is king and one of my favorite texts from the Old Testament. One of my favorite texts from the Old Testament. Kind of an obscure uh, text that's kind of uh, pulled out of the narrative of scripture here. It's not really cohesive with a lot going on. It just kind of jumps out in the middle of this. And I think it, cr- it creates and communicates one of the greatest truths about who God is and the gospel of Jesus that we read throughout all of scripture besides Jesus himself dying on the cross for us. I mean, just such a beautiful picture of the work of God in his people. And if I could preach this text every year, I I would, and I probably will, but it's just such an awesome encouragement. And I want to read it to us. I'm going to read the whole text, verses 1 through 13, and we'll pray and ask God to just work on us, just reveal his word to us, to hide me behind what he has for us. But I would just like us to read this together. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called, they called him to David. And David and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, uh, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage and said, And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage, Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba. Saul's servant and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all, to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall, t- uh, t- shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame and both his feet. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for your mercy. God, I thank you for your kindness. God, I thank you for your amazing grace. God, that nothing in this world could ever match. God, that nothing in this world could ever replace. Father, we reach for, for, for acceptance. God, we reach for stability. We reach for wisdom and knowledge in, in, in all kinds of different places, God. But I pray this morning that we would lean into your word. God, show us where good grace is. God, show us where good mercy is. God, show us where the best kindness comes from. Father, you speak to us through your word. God, hide me behind your words. God, let your truths be known. Father, we love you. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, this text, I, re- I could read this text and just say amen and we could leave because it's one of the most beautiful pieces of text in the Old Testament. I think it falls so beautifully into this uh, journey that we've walked through in who's your king, who is Christ, what is he doing, who is he in our lives, and how does he function in the midst of where we are. And I think this text is one of the most beautiful texts and revelations of Christian love that we'll ever find. I mean, and, and when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, he tells us what love is. And we're not just talking about a love between a husband and wife. We're talking about a love that God himself is the very essence of, that he gives to us, that he is for us, that he acts from us in all these different ways. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, he says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not uh, irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And I believe that this text just encompasses everything about what that's, that verse is telling us in the, in the New Testament. And that I think there's two major themes that we'll see this morning and that I just want to radiate through everything that we talk about this morning as we kind of move from this series of who is king, that we would understand with Christ as king what that dictates in our life, what that communicates in our life, what that action comes from. And it's these two themes this morning that we'll see grace in action. We'll see uh, David's act of grace, and then we'll also see that the grace that inspires the action. We'll see this good grace. If you could subtitle this this morning anything, it would be good grace, that we would see good grace of the gospel motivating and moving everything that happens in the life of a believer. And so we see this with David, David being the kind of the first person we focus in on this morning in this text. But in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see, like, if you read everything before this, that this text just is so out of nowhere. You know, almost as if David's just sitting around. And then in verse 1, we see uh, the surely the Spirit of God working in David's life in this moment. And David says in verse 1, he says, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That I may show him kindness. That just in the middle of all this, he's in the middle of battles, he's in the middle of victories, he's in the middle of having to be king, he's been anointed, he's in his place, he's in his spot, he's doing all these things. And then he just says, Is there anyone? Is there anyone I can show kindness to? From the house of Saul. And this leads him into searching out for that someone to be the object of his kindness. And who does he choose? He chooses someone from the house of Saul. Now, if you remember back to 1 Samuel, the house of Saul was not kind to David. You know, Jonathan, Saul's son, was unbelievably kind to David. 
an, an unmatched friendship between those two. But Saul himself, if we remember right, Saul himself tried to kill David on several occasions. Saul cast David out of the kingdom, chased him out of the kingdom to the point where David had to hide in caves. He was an exiled. He was fearing for his life. And Saul was just constantly after him because of his own fear, because of his own insecurities, and because of the spirit of the, the evil one that was working on in his heart. And so the, the house of David, I mean, the house of Saul would not have seemed like the ideal choice to be loved on in that moment, to be the source of his, of his uh, kindness, to be the one that he would pour out. You know, and, and not only that, but if there was anyone of the house of Saul still alive, Technically, the way that monarchies work is that the, the, the children of a king have a right to the throne. And so because Saul was the first king of Israel, technically any of his descendants had a right at the throne. And so if David were to bring this person up, then it could potentially uh, bring them to a point where they could uh, strike up a revolt, where they could try to overthrow David, take the throne from David. And not only that, so taking that into consideration, that if there was anyone from the house of Saul alive, that they would have a right to fight for that throne. But then also, what was customary in this time is if a king did take over, whether it's by strength or by whatever other means, that if there were those living of the house of the former king, it was customary for that king to wipe out all their descendants so that they couldn't come and take the throne, so that they would have no one to have any right. So when we look at it through that lens and we think about David, David has every reason to care less about anybody from the house of Saul, and not only to care less about him, but he has every right to seek after them and to bring violence upon them, to, to, to bring a battle to their doorstep, to destroy them for everything that they're worth. But David chooses to do something different. David chooses to not not act out based off of a system that would encourage him to do so. He chooses to look towards his enemy and he says, I'm going to show him kindness. Man, how crazy does that sound to us in our world today? How easy is it for us, for us to be hurt or disappointed or, or to be backstabbed or to have something happen to us that someone else has inflicted on us? I, I promise that for most of us, I know for me because I, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinful man, that my first reaction is they deserve to be punished for that, right? That my vengeance, that I need to get even with them. We're always thinking about how to get even. We're always thinking about how to make someone pay for something that they've done to us. But thank God that his system and the way that he functions is not in that way. Because he didn't deal with me in that way, and he hasn't dealt with you in that way. You know, and so he tells us here, you know, some things that I, I think that we have to know and kind of be reminded about. Well, you know, why is David acting in this way for one thing, uh, and, and, and why is he acting towards this individual in that way for a second thing? And so I think there's two things within this that we can see that are motivating David's actions to act in this graceful manner. The first thing is that he has a covenant with God. Remember in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we talked about the Davidic covenant. And what came with that is some, some stability. What came with that were some promises from God that David would be successful, that David's lineage would be successful, that David, that, you know, when we go back and we see, he says, that I will be with you, that I will make you a great name, that I will plant you, that I've appointed you, that I've given you, that I will be with you, that I will, my steadfast love will not leave you. So David is navigating his kingship with all these promises of God. And I believe it's within that covenant that he 
he can even remotely begin to move into this arena to love on his enemy. And church, it's the same way for us that we cannot truly show grace and mercy to anyone unless we have truly experienced what real grace and mercy are. Because otherwise, the only system we have to work with is man's system. And the experience that we have had with man's system is it does not function to that capacity, right? It does not function off of the if you've done me wrong, then I do you good. No, it's if you've done me wrong, I do you wrong. If you've hurt me, then I need to hurt you or you need to be punished so that things are even. It's only from God's system of good grace that we find this perspective. We need to selflessly act towards others around us. This, is, this covenant with God is a motivating factor for the grace that David would show in his life. For David, it was being led to a man that could offer him nothing and repay him in no way. This man could offer him nothing. This man had nothing. This man was in hiding. This man had a right to the throne, but he had nothing that he could give to David. You know, and then in 2 Samuel 9, 3, I love how David not only says in verse 1, he says to show him kindness, but he, he reiterates and refocuses where that kindness comes from. He says that I would show him the kindness of God. Because he's saying, look, this isn't my kindness. This isn't a grace that, that, that just musters up from within me. He says this is a kindness that comes from a great and gracious creator. This is a kindness that comes from a, a, a father in heaven that has a fatherly concern for his people. David's kindness here is referencing God's mercy and grace, that God is faithful. And David is reminded that if God is faithful, let me be faithful. Let me not be unfaithful to those around me, to those that I can show love, to those that I can show grace to, that if there are those people in my life that are low, that have, that have been hurt, that, have been, uh, that, that, are, that are in a bad situation, that if there's a situ- uh, an opportunity given for us to be kind. And remember, anytime we reference God's kindness, we're talking about his grace and mercy as an expression of that. That I believe that kindness is the action of grace and mercy lived out. And so, you know, when we think about this, that, we, that David is being faithful to God's faithfulness for him, which he challenges and brings us into, that it would be a response to what God has been doing for us and with us and in us. The second thing that I believe is driving, that we know is driving David's kindness is his covenant with Jonathan. His covenant with Jonathan, if we remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 18, that whenever Jonathan and David met together, it says that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him, because he had a concern for him. He had a, 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 they were uh, just connected together. It says, remember, it says that their souls were knit together. That because of their relationship to each other, this friendship, this binding spiritual friendship, that this would be the motivating factor for how David would treat Jonathan's son, how David would treat Jonathan's family, even if he's been hurt by those from Jonathan's lineage and from his family. And in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, Jonathan reiterates, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So he acknowledges this covenant, this relationship between these, these, this promise between them. A promise made to love and to care for one another. 
You know, and, and so it's within these relational covenants. You know, I, and I think because our, our world, we've lost so much focus of what a covenant really is, what a promise truly is, that we've lost a sight of the weight of these promises and what they mean for each other. I mean, if we take this, you know, we can obviously kind of relate it to a faith family, to a, uh, to, to a church. You know, when the Bible tells us as the body of Christ that when we are in Christ, that we are united in one spirit, and that one spirit knits our souls together the same way Jonathan and David's souls were knit together. So in a lot of ways, we have a covenant with each other, not only as, as the micro church, but as the macro church, the, the church universal, that we have a responsibility towards each other, a covenant of love and concern for each other, where we treat each other, we forgive each other, we help each other, we lean into each other's lives. You know, this covenant, you know, that's why for us as a church, when we do membership, we do a membership covenant, because we're leaning into this promise together, that we're committing to each other. You know, but not only in that context, you think of, of a marriage. You know, this, this one of the, the few covenants that, that we truly do recognize but do we understand the power of that? You know, do we, do we enter into that covenantal relationship with this type of good grace, with this type of good mercy, where like for David, you know, we know that Meshivapheth was crippled, that he couldn't do anything. He couldn't do any skill. He couldn't provide anything for the house of David. He couldn't give to his kingdom really in any capacity, but he still chose to pour out. If we navigated every relationship with the mindset that I'm not entering into it to see what I can give out of it, but see what I can put into it, how much more would we see God bless our families? How much more would we see God bless our Christian relationships? How much more would we see God bless the, the relationships with people of unbelievers in our lives that we pour out grace to them and God's love to them without any expectation of return? They may never step foot into my church, but I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to care for them. I'm still going to provide for them if I have the opportunity to. Can you imagine the impact it would have on our relationships if we'd entered into them, not wondering and hoping what we can get from it, but what we can give to it? Pouring into each other, pouring into individuals, pouring into that relationship. What I think is amazing about this situation is that David uses his position as a platform, not as a pedestal. That David uses his position not as a he uses it as a platform, not as a pedestal. And, and I, I know in your mind you're thinking, well, what is the difference? Well, I think if we think about that, we can see that when we think about a pedestal, we think about something that's elevating something to be viewed, right? We're thinking about something that's elevated to be observed, to be admired, to be celebrated. But when we think about a platform, we're thinking about something that is made to be a facilitator of action, Right To be a place that is communicated from. That action is happening from this plate. A point at which work is done from. You know, an opportunity for one's voice to be heard or to initiate an action. You know, can the challenge for us be that can we as, as Christians, can we always be a people using our positions as platforms? You know, can we use our jobs as platforms? to show good grace? Can we use our income, our talent, our time, our resources as 
platforms and not pedestals to be elevated at and worshipped. That we would not worship our jobs, our income, our finances, our stability, our comforts, but that we would use those things as a platform to see those around us, that we can lean into their lives, that we can provide for them, that we can give to them, that we can love to them, whether it's in our marriage, our friendships, our relationships within the local church, that we're leaning into it with a platform to do something. If we would start seeing what we have as a platform for action rather than a pedestal for a simple, for simply celebration, we would see the kingdom of God change lives and we would be participating in that. How great would that be? How great would that be for us to celebrate and experience that? Mark Twain said this. He said, kindness is a language the dumb can speak, the deaf can hear, and the blind can see. Kindness is that, that language that, that, that breaks all barriers. Kindness is that language that everyone hears. Kindness is that language that everyone can experience and, and be, be impacted by. You know, because that's what God has been giving to David, and that's what God gives to us in his mercy and his grace. Remember this, that mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. That is us living our life, leaning into these relationships, giving people what they don't deserve, and not giving them, even if, even if we have every right, like David had every right to negatively impact the house of Saul, anyone who has left. You know, when we talk about that, we talk about with the Lord Jesus, his meekness, choosing to withhold power when he has the power to do. That is what he's called us to as believers. And so the first thing that we'll see is that David's grace to Mephibosheth is a pattern for us in serving and ministering to others. In this moment, we are David. We are David. Seeking out our enemies to seek and to bless them. As awkward and as difficult as that may, may be, seeking out our enemies to bless them. Lumping on kindness, as the Bible would talk, to, talk about. You know, look for the poor and the weak and the lame and the people that are hidden to bless them. Bless others when they don't deserve it or bless them more than they deserve Bless others for the sake of someone else and show kindness of God to others. And then the last thing this morning is that we would see the good grace of the gospel and that if the first part we were David, the second part is us understanding that we are Mephibosheth. You know, in verse 9, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 9, it says that he was the son of Jonathan and he is crippled in his feet. You know, and if you read back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, we see that what happened was is that the same day that Jonathan, uh, that uh, Mephibosheth found out that his dad had died, it says that his caretaker was holding him, and as they were fleeing, because they were afraid that King David was going to come after them, as they were fleeing, she dropped Mephibosheth, and he fell. And from that moment at five years old, he was crippled from then on. You know, and, and when you think about that, in a society like theirs, that their value and their worth was in their work. And the fact that he couldn't do anything made him basically worthless to anybody. You know, we, we know that the place that he was at was a very small place, uh, and so we could really go ahead and infer that, uh, that Mephibosheth was in hiding, that in, in this time with his caretaker that he was in hiding, you know, he was dropped, he was broken, he was hurt, he was robbed of so much. 
You know, and I think for a lot of us, we, we navigate life feeling broken, maybe feeling like we've lost some of our direction, feeling like we're not quite sure. Maybe we've been hurt or disappointed. Like Mephibosheth, he had no control over what happened to him. It was done to him by someone else. He was hurt. He was broken. And then what's even uh, more devastating is in verse 8, when he responds to David's plea, when he responds to David's invitation, this is what he said. He says, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. You know, dogs were considered vile, unclean creatures. A dead dog was useless. I mean, what good is that? You know, this is one part humility, absolutely acknowledging a sense of humility from Mephibosheth in this moment, but also the unfortunate status of individuals who have been severely broken by others. You know, it's crazy how people or situations or experiences we have, how much they can break us, how much they can just dismantle us, how much they can literally emotionally or physically cripple us to where we can't even step out into certain experiences, step out into certain circles, step out into certain places because of the hurt and the pain that we've experienced at the hands of someone else. But what I love about this text and what I love about this moment, that even in his brokenness, what do we know happens? Mephibosheth comes to the king. He responds to the invitation. Even in his brokenness, he comes. Even in his fear, he comes. Even in the uncertainty of what the king will actually even do to him, he comes. You know, he responded to the invitation. Broken, but he came. And what happened when he came? It says the king restored to him all that he had lost. He says he gave him all the land that was Saul's, all that would have been his. He says, I'm giving this to you. You know, he may have been hurt, but he was not forgotten because someone had him in mind. And what did David tell him? David told him in verse 7, he says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. I will restore you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He was hurt, but he was not forgotten because someone had not forgotten about him. David was seeking him out. David was seeking to show him kindness because that is the kind of kindness that God showed him. God had not forgotten about David in the pasture when he was a nobody, doing nothing, but but just serving his time, doing his work. David sought after him. David found, I mean, God found him. God sought after him. God did not forget about him. And then so David returns this to someone else. And because we know that this is the characteristics of God, the Father, the creator of the universe, Luke 6, 36 says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Micah 7, verse 18, one of my favorite verses in Micah, says, Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love or he delights in mercy. That's the God that we serve. And then in Romans 5, 6 through 8, we find ourselves as Mephibosheth in this moment where he would say, for while we were still weak in Romans 5, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one, we will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for, the, for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us. 
that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That even as we were actively in rebellion against God, enemies of God, crippled by the weakness of our sin, that God saw fit to do something for us, to show mercy to us, to give grace to us, a good grace inviting us to his table, providing us a feast that he would tell us, all who would believe, that you will eat at my table always. That there's nothing you do that loses you the spot at my table that I have provided for you. And then in Luke 22, verses 28 through 30, he says this to his apostles. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assigned to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. David's grace to Mephibosheth is a wonderful reminder of God's grace to us. We are Mephibosheth. We are the crippled. We are those who are unable to provide. We are those unable to give to God of anything. We have nothing. We are like Mephibosheth would say of himself, I'm like a dead dog. I have no value separate from what you could do. And so what is David do from Mephibosheth, it says later on in this chapter, it says that he brought him into his house. And what does it say before Mephibosheth was in hiding? And where is Mephibosheth at now? In verse 13, it says that he lived in Jerusalem. He's moved to this place where he's visible. He's moved to this place where he says, I'm not in hiding anymore because of what David has done for me. And not only because of what David has done this for me, David has done this for me because of who my father was. David did this for me because of who my father was, because of the relationship between my father and David. And not only did he do that, he brought him to a new place to live out of hiding, but it says that he would provide for him for he ate always. And I love how it ends that ver- that, this chapter. It reminds us, now he was lame in both feet. Even in the midst of God's grace for us, that he rescues us from the crippling sin that we have. I love that it says that because it reminds us. It reminds us so much that even when God saves us, even when God sits us at his table and begins to work in us and for us, there is still, there is still faultiness to us. And that's okay. Mephibosheth's faultiness, Mephibosheth's deformities, Mephibosheth's injuries, his ailments would never never lose his seat at David's table. The fact that it ends with these few words speaks volumes about the sanctification and the work that God does in a Christian's life. The church, there is never a point in our life that we're not still, in a sense, lame. That we're not, in a sense, still crippled by some sin or some struggle. But God is still feeding God is still providing. God is still giving good grace to those who still don't deserve it, but he continues to give it. God's grace to us. God's grace to us. We are like Mephibosheth in hiding, poor, weak, and lame, separated from our king because of our wicked ancestors, separated from our king because of our our deliberate actions, our, our, our sinful actions. You know, our king sought us out the same way David sought out him. The king's kindness is based on a covenant. The king returns to what was lost and what was hiding. The king's honor does not immediately take away all the weakness and all the lameness, but it gives us a favor and a a standing that overcomes its sting and changes the way we think about ourselves. 
You know, even though Mephibosheth's identity of himself was a dead dog, he would no longer have to say that moving forward. And we sang about it this morning. The, 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 the proclamation of Christian, a believer in Christ, begins to acknowledge like Mephibosheth, he's, his whole family is gone. He has no skills. He has nothing to offer. But you know what he can say? He can say that he's a child of a living God. He can say that he has, he, he has a place in the king's house. He can say that he has a seat at the king's table. He has the right now to say that he is living in the king's palace. Church, that we would know, that we would know that is what God is doing for us right now. And that is what he wants to do with those around us. That's what he wants to do with those in our life. And so why is this so important and why is this so vital that we would understand this as we finish up this series, that we would know, first off, that God has given us grace to be a grace of action. God has given us good grace to be using our place, using our prosperity, using what we have as a platform, using our positions as a platform to bring good grace to those around us, not a pedestal to be celebrated and worshipped. But then secondly, to always remember, always remember and know that the message of the Christian gospel is the fact that we were crippled and lame and that our king came after us. That whenever we put our faith in Christ, when Christ is our father, when Christ is our representative, that he brings us to a table, that he provides us a place, he provides us provision. And he gives to us. And that for us, the greatest thing that we could do is move forward in our lives and share that with those around us. One of my favorite, uh, you know, poems of ch- from church history is one by C.T. Studd. I don't know if I've said this before. Maybe you've read it for yourself. But this is the famous line that you always see from that poem. And it says this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That the most important thing we'll do in our life is to take this good grace that God's given us and to share it with those around us. Lead our families in that way. Live in our workplaces that way. Show our children this grace. Letting them know what God has done and wants to do and will do. Kindness, an expression of grace and mercy and the most valuable tool we'll yield in our lives. Let's not waste what we've been given. Let's not waste what we've been given and not waste what we have and give it and not miss the opportunities that we've been given. Church, I challenge you in that. And I hope that we can leave here this morning choosing to grab a hold of that good grace and live every day with it and be an example of it in our life. Church, let's bow our heads this morning and let's pray and ask God that if we're not walking in this good grace, sharing this good grace, having this communication, doing what we can for Christ that will last for eternity beyond us, that we would get the courage and confidence to step out in that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this story. God, that I pray that we would never look at the Bible as a book of fairy tales, but we would understand that this is a book of history and that this is your story, the truth of what you do for your people and what you do with your people. God, help us be reminded of that. Help us live in that. Help us walk in that. Help us navigate life from the position of your good grace and use that as a platform to communicate to the world. God, whether it's our money, whether it's our time, whether it's our talents. God, whatever we have to offer, God, let us use it as a platform for your kingdom. God, that you tell us all you need is the faith of a mustard seed to do a work. 
for you. Father, we love you. God, I just ask you to continue to work in us and in our church, God. Continue to bless our people as they go out day by day. God, we love you. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.